Tell me. Now, do you see anything wrong in us being alone together in this cab? Two strange people of opposite sex, riding in a cab, sitting side by side. Explain that to your wife. Would you believe it? Never. Oh, madame, we're in a terrible situation. Oh, we're as good as guilty. All the facts are against us. Throw your newspaper away and let us face the facts. Driver, stop! Madame, you may think I'm a coward. I am. Welcome to Season 3 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1924, and Sarah Shackett joins us to discuss The Marriage Circle. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. We are here as part of the New York sessions with Sarah Shackett. Sarah, I have two questions for you. One, tell me about yourself. That's a statement, not a question. <laughs> two, what provoked you to say yes, other than being invited, to a Ernst Lubitsch podcast episode about a film wherein the restoration for it that you know, exists by the MoMA is actually unavailable and we had to watch on a very potato quality screener. Yeah. Tell me about what provoked <laughs> you to say yes to the marriage circle and who are you? That's a couple existential questions. I love it. Hi, my name is Sarah Shackett. I'm the associate craft editor over at IndieWire, and I love Ernst Lubitsch. So this was just like an easy, immediate yes. It's funny. We're recording this in December, and episode two of the show just came out with Derek Jaffe, who graded my first film paper when I was oh, in college. Wow. It's a small world. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. There is wonderful, and her episode is wonderful. So I felt very connected huh. to like my film nerd college roots, which is where I found Lubitsch. I think not even in a class, just like a dear friend of mine had bought a pre-code Lubitsch box set with like Blackbeard's Wife and Design for yeah. Living and Trouble in Paradise and would just start having them on in this shared common space. And I sat down and watched Design for Living with him and was like, what is happening? What is Gary Cooper I didn't know he could do that. He's in a tuxedo <laughs> and just completely fell in love with sort of the wit and the humor and the Lubitsch touch, as I'm sure everybody talks about. And then when I love something, I can get a little rabbit hole completionist about it. So I tried to go find as much Lubitsch as I could at a certain point my senior year of college. And I believe the first time I saw Marriage Circle was like in a two part daily motion video on the Internet terrible transfer absolute <laughs> garbage quality but i still thought it was really funny and really modern and what i love about this film is i think if you showed it to someone who doesn't have a lot of context for silent cinema they wouldn't find it to be remarkable because a lot of the visual language is the language of romantic comedies that we still have today and i love that you can sort of see that dna all the way back in 1924 i think that's very cool his films have this simultaneously gilded old quality, right? You know, mm -hmm. it's, they all feel like from the 19th century in some ways. And yet they feel shockingly modern. Like, yeah. how did you get away with this in 24 up until the end? Yeah. Even the postcode stuff has a winking level of sophistication of, you know, we're all in on the joke. That this is part of the fun of it is sort of juxtaposing this high class setting with, I think, very low sexy humor. And mm -hmm. that mix together is just delightful. It's not just that he found ways around the code, too. It's that there was almost this homeostasis. Yes. 
for everything he wasn't allowed to do, he found something that the code didn't dictate against, but was shocking. Yes, he air butted it. He truly did. And <laughs> not just for comedy. You know, I think about the opening of To Be or Not To Be. No film would do that like now, let alone in 1941. Opening with a string of Heil Hitlers. Just Heil Hitler in the street, you know, but he found a way to make it funny and to make the transgressive to have empathy mm -hmm. in that moment. Or like the fewer but better Russians or even Clooney Brown. The incredible amount of innuendo in that thing. Yeah. Although to bring us back to Marriage Circle, mm -hmm. I don't think anyone is hornier in a Lubitsch film than Marie Provost in this one. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Her character, Mitzi, is unstoppable. Yeah. You can watch this movie very much without intertitles. But one of the few ones we do get is like, I need love, she says. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you do. She really does. She's not lying. No exaggeration there. And to get right into her character, Adolf Menju, I mean, I love that man. Oh. But Mary Prevost as Mitzi, she made the most impression on me in this movie because she's this almost inversion of the type that we expect from Lubitsch. Yes. And usually it's the men in his films, sometimes problematically so, that are basically, and this is a trope that was omnipresent at the time. Of course. Stalking the women. And in this case, it's Mitzi just completely unrepentantly. She never, ever has to pay for her crimes. Oh, no. And, you know, it really is the film earns its title, The Marriage Circle, and the way that it ends is she gets the consolation prize. Yes, Creighton Hill as Dr. Muller. Yes. Uh, this is a film, I mean, I'm trying to stay away from plot recaps in this, but this is one where it's so entertaining to figure out who's who in this movie. Right. So you got Monty Blue as Dr. Braun, his wife, Charlotte, as the A couple, basically, but they're introduced second. Yes, which is a very interesting choice. Yeah, because first we're introduced to Mitzi and Professor Joseph Stock. I always have to guess the pronunciations of yeah. names in silent films because they're never said. Who'd have thunk it? Uh, so we're introduced to them and Mitzi is immediately this horn dog who just wants to get with Monty Blue, Dr. Braun. Yeah. And you have Adolf Menju as Joseph Stock, who could not care less. He just wants to get divorced. Yeah, no, he's busy doing his resistance rope exercise, whatever <laughs> uh, he's doing in the beginning. He is not interested in sex and sees this interest that Mitzi has as a opportunity, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which is the weirdest thing. It's very funny because she can't wait to leave and he can't wait to have her gone. show her out the yeah. door. And if they would just talk about it, they could probably work something out. But no, they each have to go through, turn around three times and go through their little circle, their dance, yeah. the marriage circle. And meanwhile, you have the A couple, which is Charlotte, who has eyes for Creighton Hill as Dr. Mueller and Dr. Braun, who truly seems to only really have eyes for his wife. So you have this endless, you have the circle, right? And you also have Miss Hoffer in the mix. Yeah, briefly. As a red herring? <laughs> yes. This poor woman who's minding her own business is just trying to have fun at a party. Esther Ralston, I think, is her yes. name. Who, again, is only in the movie for five minutes. Yeah. But she's a plot device. Right. It's because it sort of is this merry-go-round of pairing different permutations of these two couples and mm -hmm. assorted extras up and having different people be jealous of different people, different people get with different people. It's truly wild. The amount of times the film shifts permutations is incredible. And yeah, it's interesting to me how, I mean, comparing this to One Hour With You. Right. One Hour With You is quite a bit simpler. And it's plotting quite a bit. Yeah. And there's no doubt as to who the A couple is. I was expecting this to be the Adolf Menju, Mary Prevost show. Right. And they're not the protagonists. And that was, I mean, I was a little disappointed because I thought they both lit up the screen. In, in yes, their own they're ways. both more interesting. That's for yes. sure. And it's odd because who we're meant to root for is divorced from who we're following in the film. Because mm -hmm. we're following Mizzy very much. And I think that's a common, I don't even want to say issue, but it's a common phenomenon in this era of Lupich's movies. Yeah. 
where in this time period, I mean, Rosita, before this, Mary Pickford is the ostensible protagonist and she's fine. But Irene Rich as the queen, right. I think, makes the most profound impression in that film. In fact, she has the most agency of anyone. She drives the plot more than just about anyone in the film. Yeah. So you have this dynamic where the person that you are most invested in is fourth most important character in the whole film or fourth build. Right. Yeah, it's odd. And there is a confrontation between Mitzi and Charlotte at the end. Mm -hmm. And if you're reading lips, it's quite explicit. Um, Oh, really? I'm phenomenally bad at reading lips. I'm pretty okay at it. But yeah, I'm pretty sure that Florence Vitor just straight up calls her a bitch (laughs) as part of (laughs) as part of the scene. And it's just not lost, obviously. But Mitzi doesn't get any comeuppance. She drives the plot. It sort of revolves around her wants and whims. And she rides off into the sunset that is very definitely Southern California and not Vienna. But that's okay because we can pretend it's Vienna. (laughs) Yes. And this is one of the formative, you know, Paramount Paris. Right. Even though it's Vienna, the same idea applies. And, you know, I think this is one of his least convincing. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's interesting for as convoluted as the plot is, there aren't that many sets. Mm -hmm. And he relies, I think, a little bit more on exteriors that are very plain and it's very mm-hmm. easy to see that like yeah this was someone's house and you the see valley. Almost half a block yeah exactly whereas in something like this is paris mm-hmm. you know you see the wide boulevards or like the apartment buildings that look out over each other he doesn't really utilize architecture here as much as you would think mm-hmm. except in the hotel scene at the end with the elevators that's an absolutely outstanding gag truly this man's favorite terrain is hotels it's phenomenal one thing I love about his later films, especially his postcode stuff, is his play with yeah. like forced perspective and map paintings and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he hadn't quite developed that yet. But one thing I did notice that was immediately apparent here was suddenly his wit with intertitles, his irony yes. with those. And they're credited to Victor Vance, a writer I'm not very familiar with. I know Hans Crowley wrote most of the films in this period until right. he ran off with his wife. Whoops. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> did you know the story about how Hans, in 1929, his most consistent collaborator, absconded with Lenny? Yeah, I was aware. I don't know the full story, but I was aware that Lubitsch is there are lots of reasons he was a workaholic, probably. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, he basically worked himself to death. He had a a heart attack at the age of what, 55, I think. Yeah, something like that. I won't say it's a sad story because he clearly made the most of his life. (laughs) No, but, you know, it's the wilder thing of no more Lubitsch pictures. Exactly. It's sad. Uh, It does make me sad that we didn't get late Lubitsch. I know. Old man Lubitsch would have been astonishing, especially in like if he'd made it into the 60s, which he probably would have done. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was two years older than John Ford, I think. Yeah. He could have made a film in that era. Uh, <laughs> the Cahiers people could have got to him and he could have spilled beans. And, <laughs> that's actually one thing about researching. I mean, I've read my fair share of John Ford books. And right. A Hitchcock book or two. And reading the only two, I mean, I think there's, I'll cut this, but there's one worthwhile Lubitsch biography. And it's told from set to remove. Practically in the footnotes is I had to comb through three different archives to find, find these quotes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, it, oh, boy. It, it's uh, so there's a very different tenor. But coming back to the intertitles, there's an opening set of intertitles that are just immediately ironic, right? Like the day starts late, but gloriously and yes. cut to a hole in his sock, right? Right. And then there's a few after that where it's just we're misled repeatedly as to it. And then we're introduced to this kind of ironic winking tone that the whole film. Yeah, takes. exactly. The intertitles themselves act as this sort of wonderful facade mm-hmm. that gives you a sense of society people. Right. And the class mores that all these people are moving through, even though they have holes in their socks. 
which also make them a lot more human. Like I'm never mad at Adolf Minju. I can't pronounce his name. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but like he's he's delightful and he just wants to be not in this marriage. And the film does a good job of positioning you to understand that he's never portrayed as dull or a villain, which in one hour with you, the husband character is a much more severe, mm -hmm. less winking fellow. I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Adolf has, I mean, he is the best type of typecast, right? Where he's so good at playing this one character that he plays all the time. Yeah. He's basically the same character here as he is in A Woman of Paris and in Forbidden Paradise. There's almost no distinction between the three of them. Oh, no. Probably moving through the same universe as the stock type. Oh, yeah. But there's something about just like, I can't even quite explain it. Just the fact that his eyebrows and his mustache <laughs> kind of move in concert with each other that creates this wonderful sense of irony that he has of just like he is above whatever picture he is in. Mm hmm which is kind of like how lots of Lubish characters operate is that they're a little bit more sophisticated even than the plot, but they're in it because they want to have fun and so, and for the same reason that we do, you know? There's an ironic remove to a lot of his characters yeah. where it's almost like they're watching themselves in a movie. Yes, exactly. As a side note, Adolf Menju didn't like Lubitsch as a director, which I find a little sad. And, but I have a quote from him here. He said, all I had to do to make Lubitsch happy was step before the camera and mimic every single gesture he gave me. <laughs> which i'm like fair enough yeah you know some people i mean jack benny loved that but Menju didn't apparently mm. i want to talk about some of the use of objects and inserts in this yes there's some great oh. typical lubich play there absolutely are there any that you want to highlight because i'm uh, sure there's one that we're both thinking of i mean there's a couple they're scattered all throughout this film you know there's a clock that's important there's a gun that's important <laughs> as you mentioned we open with a sock there's our stealth a couple's breakfast that shot yes. is incredible I'm sure we'll talk about it. I actually really love there are a couple instances where people are like fumbling to get rid of objects where Dr. Muller and Monte Blue's character are both in a car. Muller has a rose that he's picked up that he thinks Charlotte Braun has dropped to him and he quickly like hides it. And Lubitsch doesn't go in close. He trusts that you're going to clock that motion. That feels very modern to me mm -hmm. of just like in that medium shot, a character fumbling to get rid of something so that another character doesn't see it. I love that moment. And then I think just to dwell on the rose moment yeah, one, yeah, one more yeah. time, because I love the way the roses express the externalize the character dynamics so yes. well. Where you have that interplay, right, where you have Charlotte on the balcony, Dr. Yes. Muller, he has the rose. And then uh, she inspired by her kind of basically emotional affair. Right. Takes a few roses to her husband who then bumbles them onto the floor for his own reasons yes. that are unrelated to his love for her. But it's a cue for yes. her. Lubitsch is able to sort of let you track the misunderstanding through that object work. Mm -hmm. It's very, very cool. And yes, we have to talk about the breakfast. We do have to talk about the breakfast. Classic oh. Lubitsch shot. Actually, I'll let you describe it because I am, I have like in a Maldivar memory where I remember everything with a little twist. Mm. I've slandered so many scenes by doing that. We get a two shot of the two of them being very close and cute at breakfast. And then Lubitsch goes on to a insert shot of the table where she is stirring a cup of coffee or tea. And he mm -hmm. kind of has like, I don't know what kind of egg is the kind where you like tap it yeah. and the, like a deviled egg. I don't know. And they're sort of making motions with their spoons. His spoon stops and he puts it down <laughs> and then her spoon just sort of slows down and then stops. And then both of the hands leave the frame and you know what's happening. And then they push away the coffee. That's right. Yeah. So it's not <laughs> to spill it with their clear off screen yes. action. <laughs> yes. You know, you don't want any casualties from that makeout. 
And it's such a Lubitsch moment of, you know, that playful inference that he offers you up as like a gift. And then there's a few like little bits of that earlier. I mean, I love the bit where Mitzi crashes Charlotte's house. And yeah. what does she do? She's about to strike a discording note in their relationship. She puts her hand on the piano. And what Mickey Mouse is out of the score, but a discordant note. Yeah. That gets to the score. You know, I don't know if there was a cue for that in the original score cue sheet. I should ask David that. But that struck me as just typical. Oh, it's clever. Yeah. It's incredibly clever because he's cued you to sort of pay attention to the music in the scene, even if you're watching it completely silent, because there are all those cut ins on the sheet music itself. Mm-hmm. He's emphasizing the lyrics of like, these people love each other. And then they go over and we see Mitzi and she sort of jams her hand down on the keys and you hear it. You really, really do. Even though I think this is all stuff that he'll build on to more sublime effect later. This is just such a good setup and punchline. The gags just are flawless, immaculate in this movie. They really, really are. It's interesting. There's like a litany of great little moments in this. Yeah. And yet having now, I think, with the exception of Eternal Love, seen all the films from this period, it's one of the ones where I feel like I've never found myself fully in sync with this film's tone. It feels a little like you have these wonderful grace notes, but there's this infusion into every single moment of a levity yeah. that yeah. you see in even the tragic bits of Student Prince in Old or in Lady Windermere's Fanner and Rosita, which shocked me. I love Rosita. Wow. That would be a new movie to me if I saw it now. Yeah. The new restoration is just the stuff that the MoMA did is they saved it. Wow. I watched a bit of the bootleg print of it and yeah. it seemed unsalvageable. But this is one of the films from this period that I struggle with most. It's not Madame Dewberry. It wasn't yeah. the turgid bore or anything. But I found myself kind of going, okay, so what tone is Lubitsch trying to strike here? He's clearly going for this slightly champagne feeling, right? And yet there's scenes that go by that almost feel like they're there to get across the deck chair re of the plot. That is the problem with it, is mm-hmm. that it's not that this is a love pentagon and there's a lot to manage. One hour with you proves you can manage it quite well. But it does feel like someone was like, okay, but we need to know how she gets from the doctor's office to here. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of deck chair arranging is, I think, a great way to put it. It pays off in moments like the party sequence where we see Mitzi do a fairly bang up job of sabotaging the relationship between the bronze. But the air goes out of the balloon a little bit. Mm-hmm. It feels to me a lot more like not quite a Looney Tune cartoon, but like it was funny to rewatch this movie after watching a lot of White Lotus. Mm, which I've still not seen. I'm so understand. <laughs> I won't spoil anything, but there is definitely a mannered comedy of sophisticated comedy to that, but also like a heaviness that can come. They reminded me of each other. Ah, interesting. Now I got to watch The White Lotus. I think I've seen a grand total of two TV shows from this year and they're How To, which nice. is, I think, a masterpiece and Babylon Berlin, which is fun pulp. Babylon <laughs> Berlin is great, though. <laughs> it's so fun. Yeah, it's a great way to spend time. It is. We've been going through a, I'll cut all this. <laughs> Ani and I have been going through a massive Berlin phase yeah, of yeah, like yeah. watching stuff from the Trummel films from the 40s. It's been great. But yeah, there's one moment in this film where I feel like if I had to say my favorite bit of this whole film, it's actually involving Monty Blue. And it's when Charlotte owns up. Right. In this era, it feels like people in Lubitsch movies are keeping their secrets. In Lady Windermere's fan, which is upcoming, everyone keeps their secret. Pretty much. Yeah. In this one, the truth comes out, but it doesn't matter. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And most of the time, 
I say this with deep love in my heart that Monte Blue is the Kirkland brand Maurice Chevalier. <laughs> <laughs> oh, have you seen Monte Carlo? I've not seen Monte Carlo. Jack Buchanan is also the other Kirkland brand. He's oh, like the no name brand. <laughs> I love Jack Buchanan and other things, but he is very much in the right. Maurice role. He's not draped himself in glory in that movie. Right. But this is a moment where Monte Blue, I think, is very good. Yes. In this moment where he's prompting his friend to just say yes. Two things that are true, we know. To admit to his emotional yeah. affair with Monty Blue's wife. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But as a favor, because he doesn't believe. And so we sort of see all of the different levels of information interacting in a comedic way so that everybody kind of gets what they want or at least gets off. There's no consequences for anybody for anything they did. Yeah. And even Mitzi gets what she wants. Oh, yeah. She and Dr. Muller, they're like, hey, you're left over. I'm left over. You're a plus yeah. one. I'm a plus one. We can be plus ones together and go off to some adventures. Exactly. Exactly. Which, again, is, I think, chasing that champagne feel. It's not woven throughout. I think because we are genuinely worried about the consequences for these people throughout a lot of the movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think there are ways that Lubitsch gets across a better margin of safety through Marie Chevalier addressing the camera throughout one hour with you. Yeah, it was funny you mentioned margin of safety because that's what Dara, (laughs) I'm like, oh, no wonder you did well. (laughs) But uh, I learned that from Dara too. Just by recording with it. It's a Wesleyan thing. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Speaking of that ending too, I mean, is this the first Lubitsch ending chronologically that has two characters driving off in the back of a cab? To my knowledge. Yeah, I think so because you have some back of the cab action in I Don't Want to Be a Man, but that doesn't end with that. That is an ending, yeah. No, it's just a plot device. Oh, man. Because you got that Lady Windermere's fan, you got that at least three or four times during the pre-code era. I mean, it's his favorite ending. You know, because it's all inference. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great way to have our characters are going off to an unknown future. Right. I feel like of all the characters in this film, Mitzi and Dr. Muller are going to have the best adventure. Oh, yeah. Like, hands down, Dr. Stock is going to go back to like, now he has a mirror to shave with, which is nice for him. (laughs) But his life is going to be very boring. Our core couple's life is going to be very boring because it has been throughout. They're just going to be in love and have breakfast with each other. And that's fun. But like Mitzi and Dr. Muller are actually going to go have adventures. Yeah, exactly. And that's part of why I think they're especially Mitzi. I mean, clearly Lubitsch is drawn to the rebels at all times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even when they're not. It's that morality thing. I have kind of a overall thesis about Lubitsch's morality, which is that interesting. He's more interested in it's not about your righteousness. It's about your ability to successfully play act as something. If you are good at that, if you are successful, if you are Monisku in Trouble in Paradise, you are the hero, even if you are a thief with no morals. And I think this where Mitzi is kind of the hero of this, even though she's the villain. She absolutely is because she is the most interesting character who makes the most choices. Everyone else is kind of reacting to her. Yeah. And she's not impersonating as anything. She's being very genuine. but. You're right. There's like a certain ability to manipulate others, to get others to feel things or think specific things that his best characters are very good at that. She's enterprising. She sure is. (laughs) She sure is. (laughs) Even when she's stalking her her best friend's husband. For no reason. At the drop of a hat. Yeah. We're never really given a motivation for why. It's just that she's clearly has a magnetism. Yeah. I mean, she's bored. I, I get that. (laughs) <laughs> and Monte Blue I mean, is a good looking guy. He's a good looking guy. <laughs> With the most face paint ever. <laughs> I mean, I bet on like a nitrate paint it looks great. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it looks better on nitrate. And also it's unfortunate in this film in particular because there aren't that many like 
really atmospheric, expressive moments. There are a couple mm-hmm. where Monte Blue and Marie Prevost sort of walk off into the garden. Yes. And sort of into darkness. Like that's a very wonderful, expressive shot. But there's stuff going on in two minutes of the docks of New York that puts this just completely yeah. to shame. <laughs> I think Charles Van Enger shot this and Charles Brusher who shot a little film called Sunrise. Yeah. I think Charles Rocher, his work in Rosita is significantly more evocative to me. Like you got that nighttime sequence just in Rosita. There's nothing in here that approaches that or even in like the Wildcat, if you've seen that from his late Berlin period. I haven't, no. Where he's just doing, I was supposed to say wild. It works. Unreasonable things with aspect ratios in that movie. Oof. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I feel like he's figuring out how to be disciplined in this film, right? This is a film where he's suddenly nailed down He's gone, okay, I'm going to dispense with all of the frills. No giant crowd scenes. Yeah. I think he has that quote of how many times can you see thousands of people? And Rosita does have a cast of hundreds. And I feel like he almost sawed off a few too many edges. No, it feels almost like a challenge film for him. He's like, Mm -hmm. okay, can I do this with three sets and five people? And I get one party scene. I get to cheat once. Yes. But it does feel very constrained. And so I think he's very smart and psychological in how he puts his camera, but it doesn't move. It doesn't feel as fluid the way other Lubitsch films do. Mm -hmm. And there's only a couple of shots that really stuck with me. There's one point of view shot with Adolphe Menjou looking down at the car. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I'm like, whoa. Now with the hindsight of having seen Lady Windermere's fan, he would explode that (laughs) in very satisfying ways later on. Just play with point of view during the later part of this era is magnificent. Yeah. But this feels like the first I'm like, whoa, there's a spark. And I think that it's something where because the plot is so convoluted and he's managing all of that, I feel like maybe he didn't have as much or didn't feel as free mm. to do as many point of view things. Whereas, you know, Lady Windermere is technically established IP. So you can <laughs> you can play a little bit with it. That's true. I mean, this was based off of, I mean, I have. The- this was based off of a play of some sort. And you feel the theateriness of it, of there would be a charge mm-hmm. of when people entered and exit on a stage. Yeah. That's hard to convey in the film, although he figures out a couple ways to do it in the party sequence. And then again, later at the hotel in terms of people just missing each other and, you know, people switching things around just before another person appears and stuff like that. Yeah. And the play is Only a Dream by Lothar Schmidt, circa 1909, which actually also gets at a lot of his films from this era feel like a mishmash of time periods. Yeah. Forbidden Paradise is that to the extreme because you got 20s cars in a film about Catherine the Great. Yep. Which is incredible. In this case, you have social mores and kind of even interiors that feel 19th century. And again, early 20th century cars. Technology, you have his exercise machine, which again could be 200 years old, but feels very modern. There's these sort of little incongruous details that make it more modern, but they're psychologists who are treating nervous women. And that just feels like, why are we in the 1850s all of a sudden? Exactly. It's not quite smoothed out, but like you can see that there's this one shot where the two women are catching up for the first time. And there's this little fade in the middle of it to sort of capture the passing of time. It's like, oh, you're so good at this. Mm-hmm. You've got it. You understand how to convey information using the tools of cinema and using the camera. But there's just like a lot of other stuff going on in this movie. This is where I can kind of loop in A Woman of Paris mm. because this was his first production after having seen that. And there are so many little details. I mean, even just the casting of Adolf Menjou, who's sure. in A Woman of Paris and very similar role. Little details where it feels like tonally, even the language of the film, the way the shots are constructed, it feels like he had a notepad out during that movie. And there's contradictory things I've read and heard and been told about the degree to which Lubitsch was influenced by that versus the later DeMille films. Right. But I can't help but see a commonality in that cinematic language between this and A Woman of Paris. It's like a switch flipped and suddenly, oh, he's making 
making films with four or five people, maybe two or three at a time in rooms with lots of innuendo. Yep. I didn't really have an out from that, <laughs> but I think the continuity of the film was interesting too. Yes. Um, and that there is continuity. That there is continuity, <laughs> which it's mostly to the advantage of Marie Provost and not the main couple at all. Yeah. One thing I find interesting is the splitting up the couples at parties thing. Mm. How many years has it been? It's been uh, 98 years since this thing came out. I'm always interested in the art of splitting up couples at parties, yeah. which again, I keep forgetting exists. And then I'm reminded that it was a norm at some point somewhere that I'm very much ignorant of in this film. And I have nowhere to go with that. But that was a note I had there. <laughs> Why do they split up couples at parties? Well, again, I think there's a logic and an etiquette of parties that we've lost that's present mm. in this film and also in One Hour With You and also in yes. a lot of his sophisticated stuff. But that feels like we lost it around World War Two. In terms of you weren't sat next to each other, you were sat with a partner who was not your spouse or partner and that you were expected to dance with lots of different kinds of people and that it feels not only normal and the problem isn't that they're split up. It's that, okay, he's talking to the wrong woman like you go run interference. Best friend of mine. It's the instigator for the entire climax of the film. Yeah. The miscommunication there where it's, no, he wants to sit next to the person that Charlotte thinks is the person he's having an emotional affair with, basically. Yeah. Or an affair of some sort. But no, it's just, that's just the safe woman he wants to be. No, he wants the other woman to be away. Yeah. I will take anyone. Please come sit over here. Don't sit me next to my stalker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I do lament. I understand why it's different in one hour with you, but like in the Chevalier movie, it's that he can't tie his own bow tie, which the Mitzi character unties. And so now Mm. he's in trouble. And in this, it's like he offers her a cigarette case, which she throws away. And the back and forth of the cigarette case is so good Mm. because he can sort of compartmentalize and ritualize movement to such degree that you can tell how each step of offering the cigarette, tap, 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 like where's le- like each each of it is an advance, which is probably why he's so particular slash wearing on actors of just like do what I tell you to do. It feels like it's because he can make each motion feel like each step in a dance. And it's very, very fun and sexy in the moment, for sure. I think you've hit upon something that's very key to how Lubitsch sees actors and characters where especially now we're trained to see actors as primarily conduits for a coherent character where we understand their motivations and those traits motivations inform their performance right right called naturalistic acting right and Lubitsch you know obviously his films are made in a more performative era but even beyond that I think he's even a little more arch yes than most where and I think this is maybe why some actors didn't maybe enjoy working with him others did he sees those gestures as the primary role right where Mm -hmm. it's not about hey you are this character you're doing this it's no I have preconceived of a series of actions for you to take and those are how the audience will understand you as a character so communicate those exactly the way I want you to as clearly as possible right because the character comes out of objects it comes out of things that we can only half see or infer and you're right a lot of the times he uses actors bodies exactly like that although not you know I want to give everybody in this movie a little bit of credit like there's a moment in the party where like Marie Provost who has such sort of beautiful eyelashes and hooded eyes she just does like a a slinky move where she looks down her nose when she's about to be like I am gonna fuck up this woman's entire life and it's this great modern naturalistic moment of acting. So there's room for that in here too. But he, I think, primarily sees things turning in more a sort of a puzzle construction, geometric kind of film logic. Mm-hmm. 
especially in this movie. Yeah. Especially. Oh, yeah. And that was a good time to kind of get into the how this is situated in his career, because this whole era is every film seems to just have some twist in his career. Mm. Because at this point, what's happened? He has Rosita, his flirtation with the United Artists did not really go his way. Alas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the film is great, but he had a horrible experience. So what does he do? He uh, signs up with Warner Brothers. Noted bastion of sophisticated comedy, Warner Brothers. Yes. And we have stories. <laughs> and he gets offered $60,000 per film and then one quarter of the net profits. But I'm going to read the actual one provision of his contract because it is incredible. He gets basically a carte blanche contract. Yeah. No, he had like full creative control is my understanding. Basically, he was given his own production unit, which is absurd. Basically, he could hire whoever he want. And he got this. Lubitsch shall have the sole, complete, and absolute charge of the production of each such photoplay, except in matters involving money, and that the story shall be selected by Warner and approved of by Lubitsch. Such sole charge shall include the sole direction, control, and supervision, as well as the hire and discharge of the scenario writer, the cast, and it goes on and on and on, like every single department is listed. Warner agrees that there shall be no interference of any kind whatsoever from any source with Lubitsch with respect to any matter or thing connected with the production, cutting, and final completion of such photo plays. Is that like the first carte blanche deal? Yeah. I mean, maybe in contract. I feel like probably Griffith had a conversation yeah. where he was then allowed to do whatever he wanted. Otherwise, you don't get to make intolerance without that. You well, know? yes. Maybe there should have been a contract. But, um... <laughs> yes, there is some... <laughs> I'm no historian, but this sure feels like unprecedented for that moment in the production system that was going. Mm-hmm, especially for a relatively, not untested, but he was new to Hollywood. Yeah. Been there a year. <laughs> and, you know, his German films had broken through to the States, which is not nothing. But it still feels a little bit wild. And I think it feels like a very Lubitsch thing to happen, that he can embody the sophisticated European director and then get what he wants. Whether or not the foundation of that is true, he's able to make it happen. I can only infer that he had some incredible negotiating skills because the fact that he managed to do this and also within 10 years, he was the production head of Paramount. That doesn't come accidentally, I guess, (laughs) when you're a director, especially with strong creative feelings. But on the other hand, he walked into kind of this hornet's nest at WB of like they were a rough and tumble studio. They were an upstart. They were hungry for prestige. And you had the sibling rivalry between Harry and Jack and Sam. And there's books on this that I won't get too deep into it. But (laughs) there is one anecdote I want to relate. And again, 50% chance I cut this because it is incredibly bewildering. So uh, basically, this is from the Scott Amon biography of Ernst Lubitsch, Laughter in Paradise. I'm going to quote word for word because this is incredible. This is how Warner Brothers would impress possible investors. Okay, this is, investor comes on to a lot. What do they do? They get everyone to almost pretend to be a film crew and make it look really great. Yeah. Byron Haskin, a cameraman at the studio, remembered production stopping fairly frequently in order to impress potential investors. He said, we would get every camera out of the vaults set it up on a phony set and grab a few of the extra people around. Anybody was the director. Anybody was the cameraman. Nothing was actually happening. No film. Then Harry Warner would take them walking through and Jack would tell them, well, here's Monte Blue. Here's Mary Privost. As the final stop in the tour, John Barrymore would be pressed into service to take the (laughs) eager marks into the office. There they would meet Freddy the office boy, who was renowned for the heroic proportions of his male organ and for his willingness to display it. We used to lay 18 nickels on top of it, remembered Haskin. That would generally be the convincer. You know, when I'm trying to make business decisions, 
This feels made up. This feels made up. This isn't the only good Lubitsch biography. <laughs> Look, insert Elon Musk joke here. <laughs> so the- we are currently recording a day after the famous poll that will go into the history books. Lord, I mean, that's absolutely insane. <laughs> I've read Easy Riders and Rage. I've read the weird story. That is the weirdest. Why 18? Why? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like the... <laughs> It sounds like, like something Grandpa nickels. Simpson would say, you know, yeah. it's like, give me three V's for a quarter. You'd say, you know, it's bizarre. Anyways, I have to imagine that there's a level of suspense to it of like, you think this is maybe a 10 nickel situation, but they go <laughs> one, two, three, and it keeps going higher. And by the time you get to 15, everybody's in. Sold yes. $500,000 in 1924 <laughs> money. You know, it's the roaring 20s, I guess. I guess. The Great Depression had not happened yet. Yeah. But anyways, there is a method to my madness of that story. And that's the type of environment Warner Brothers was, apparently, according to Harry the cameraman. Which makes entire sense why Ernst Lubitsch, who I assume also got the tour, he was also wooed, would be like, I have my own unit here. Yes. Get away from me, everyone yeah. who I didn't pick. Exactly. <laughs> this building, this one over here, that's mine. Yes, yeah, stay out brothers yes uh and to look ahead probably this will be in the windermere episode but they had an acrimonious breakup oh yeah the telegrams they sent back and forth are memorable this partnership lasted i think by mid-1926 he was basically gone from the company yeah he did this one lady windermere's so this is paris and i think that might be it he also did forbidden paradise there was one lost film in there too which was, i think not never been kissed but kiss me again he had one clara beau film that is lost to history right this was a, and throughout this period in his life, just endless headaches where he would, I think partially because he was given carte blanche, he was constantly just like the subject of skepticism from the Warners because his films were not usually major hits. No, he didn't lose money, but none of them were huge. And it makes a kind of sense because he has all of this control and what he does is he goes smaller with it, mm-hmm. which I think is fascinating. You refused to make Madame Duberry 3. Yeah. He made two. He made Anna Boleyn, but um, <laughs> which is just as turgid. And I think we have to mention the sibling rivalry, where I believe Harry was quite a fan of Lubitsch. He believed in him, and Sam and Jack weren't so big on him. Right. They didn't like this idea of this, we need a prestige director, this continental director to bring in the European audiences. And his American films did not play that well in Berlin. They expected them to play well in Europe, and they didn't. They made almost all their money in the U.S. Yeah. Which is interesting. You'd think that people in Berlin would be like... It actually makes a lot of sense to me, because these are American characters, even mm. though he stuck them in Europe. They're very much set in Lubitsch land, especially Marriage Circle has no connection to Vienna mm-hmm. at all whatsoever. They're Austrian sounding names, but everyone is behaving in a very American fashion. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that's part of this this wonderful mixing in Lubitsch of high and low American enterprise and European setting and sophistication. And that's part of the virtue. But it does not surprise me that these movies did not do well in Berlin. I think that makes perfect sense. So you have this very, throughout this period, he is having to look over his shoulder every 10 seconds. Yeah. Just like, can I get this made? Because <laughs> they didn't like Hans Crowley or one of the Warners didn't. Oh, really? The writer of a lot of these films. Yeah. At one point, they said, Ernst, here's $10,000 for the script. If you want to hire another writer, you have to pay him yourself. And so he gave the $10,000 to Hans, just straight up. Games had to be played constantly and Ernst would test the limits. He asked for real marble. Oof. And he got a reply, you'll get marble tile. You know, you'll get whatever yeah, they whatever. use for that. Yeah. And that was just him trying to go, how far can I push this? What's the limits? So he, he wasn't exactly playing it safe. No, and I think that honestly, I think about that in terms of directors now. And, you know, there's some young on the come directors who get these big tentpole films. And I think it's the ones who can be really aggressive and 
aggressive is maybe not the right word, but have conviction in their vision and be like, no, fuck you. I need this to tell this story who don't get lost in the churn Mm. of studio notes and of every shot being corrected with VFX to the point where it doesn't look like anything. I think that if you're in this kind of a position, you do need to push the limits in order to figure out, okay, what is the space in which I can create? So that doesn't surprise me either that he was like, let's see if I can get real marble out of these fuckers. (laughs) (laughs) This is a period where it wasn't just like him trying to push the production limits. He had a real artistic vision that he was trying to realize in the trade paper Film Daily, he, in 1927, gave an interview where he selected The Marriage Circle as the favorite of his films, actually, at that point, mm. which I find uh, that's very interesting considering I'm a huge Lady Windermere's fan, supporter now. But he had this quote about The Marriage Story, which I think really gets at his headspace at this time. In the back of the idea was a desire to create a new form, a different technique. I mean, the process employed in developing a story along natural human lines with the characters, all flesh and blood people who were just a little bit bad and not too good. <laughs> Our heroes and heroines and pictures are so often too good. Nothing particularly thrilling happened, but there was suspense, interest, comedy, human beings reacting to given situations as they do in real life. I call it my picture of no regrets. If I had to do it all over again, of course, there might be little places where I could improve it. I think it really gets at it, right? Where he's going out of his way to make a film about flawed people trying to get through life. Like they're little things, you know, uh, romantic headaches. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you're exactly right. And it's very easy to see what he was reacting against. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, part of silent cinema, which is beautiful, but often the characters are very archetypical. Mm-hmm. And I think this film, we're following around deliberately a character who is the most flawed of anybody in the film. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you said that he was like, maybe I could do it again better because he did. He did. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's clearly an idea that he was willing to go back to, which I find fascinating, too. I find interesting which films he was willing to remake. Yeah. A later film of his, That Uncertain Feeling, was a remake of Kiss Me Again. Another film or two of his that he remade. Yes, The Mary Jail and So This Is Paris. Right. Are actually based off separate offshoots of the same basic work. So it's kind of the same thing where it's a very loose remake. Mm -hmm. His willingness to do that is interesting to me then. That he'd be willing to, I don't know, spend his time trying to reiterate on things. Yeah. And it's interesting when you look at those two movies side by side. Sort of the give and take. I think you get more of characters being messy Mm -hmm. in this one in the 1924 version and you get a lot more of a sense of place of space in that wonderful home that Marie Chevalier and Jeanette MacDonald have in One Hour With You. It's playful in a different way when so much of the dialogue is rhyming in that movie because it's that sort of musical of that era whereas with this there's a lot more of that playfulness comes in through the dissonance between the inner titles and what we're actually seeing. So it's very interesting what moves and what shifts, even though the beats of both are almost identical up to a certain point in the marriage circle. <laughs> it's been a few years since I've actually watched One Hour With You. So I'm going to be a little vague with my recollections. But one other distinction I remember from One Hour With You is that in that film, you have the Jeanette McDonald and Maurice Chevalier characters. They have a much more direct relationship to the audience. Yeah. That they're singing at us, both of them, especially Maurice, as he does. As he does. I remember the ending of the film so well where they're both just yeah. singing at the camera. And yet I don't believe Mitzi does. She doesn't because she is not the focus of that film the way that she is here. Mm-hmm. Because there's a much more electric main couple here mm-hmm. who are our stars and who we're introduced to first. The first thing we see in One Hour With You is the two of them in the park. Yes. A little offshoot of that. Mitzi is a character that is in so many Lubitsch films, the name. Yes. I'm curious as to why he returned to that name so many times, because I think that might be the single most common given name in his movies. I wonder, yeah. 
Because there's also Mitzi and the Mary Jail. There's a couple others between these. And I have no grand thesis there except Mitzi as a name he seemed to like. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if like if it sort of carries. There's certain connotations now where like it's a sort of a joke of bad screenplays that if you have sort of a sporty female character, you name her Sam or Kate or something like that. <laughs> Maybe like there was some connotation of Mitzi being sort of playful and evoking that. But I don't know. And she's always a rebellious type in all those yeah. movies. In The Mary Jail, she's the maid, and yet she's also the most interesting character in that movie. Well, there you go. <laughs> Just name your character Mitzi and all be well. I mean, exactly. That'll work in 2022. Uh, <laughs> you know, if the Fablemans can do it, then anybody can. Ah, uh, you know what? I still have not seen the Fablemans, <laughs> except I've watched the David Lynch ending five times now, because I am shameless and I had to. It's so good. Yeah, it's... Like... Maybe cut this, but honestly, it's the best part of the movie. <laughs> you know, I've heard that from so many people at this point, but I've watched it on loop a few times, certainly. As far as where Lubitsch would go from here, I mean, we'll follow along with that next episode, which is, I believe, Three Women, which is a much less funny movie, unfortunately. So we have, again, Lubitsch is now landed in Warner Brothers. We're going to stay here for a few episodes at Warner Brothers in the happy, happy place where they measure things with nickels. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but this is where we have the real solidification of the Lubitsch style that we all know. Like Champagne, this is the episode where I'm going to quote Scott Eyman the most because he is so on point in this chapter. But he likens the change between his German and American films as his German films are like a brass band. Mm -hmm. And his American films are like a chamber orchestra. One is this big brash thing that announces itself, whether it's in Man of Dewberry, Giant Epic, or whether it's in Oyster Princess, which is like a brass band playing jazz. And in this, you have just everything is in the tone, right? To me, the big innovation here is the tone in the register. Gone are the flailing arms, theatrics, and it's all in the knowing glances and the little things. Yeah. He's found his milieu here, mm -hmm. even if, as we've talked about, there's still things to refine, but all of the tendencies that make the Lubitsch touch are here and... I just think in terms of setting up discrete moments of setup and then payoff, you really feel him get it right a lot here. We were talking a little bit about this off mic, that this feels like a Charmander film. There's more of an evolution. And I watched this movie and I'm like, OK, now I get how Trouble in Paradise happened. It didn't just happen. Mm -hmm. First, he had to make Marriage Circle so that that movie could work and you could have really amoral characters that we'd love to follow around. And so it feels very much to me, Marriage Circle, like this sort of wonderful evolutionary look back that doesn't lack sophistication. Crucially, I think, you know, a lot of times you watch stuff that's building blocks and you're like, oh, that's cute, but it's not quite there yet. I mean, it is all there, but it just shows you how much further room he had to run is what struck me watching this film again. Late Lubitsch built upon this film in so many ways. And I would actually liken a film like Ninochka, which I think this template written by Billy Wilder, it reminds me almost of something like Ernest Lehman's screenplay for North Northwest. Mm. You know, a director's been around long enough that fans of that director are now working for that director and they've been brought up in that style. So they go, I'm going to bring this to its yeah. logical conclusion, right? Because that was North Northwest. Ernest Lehman is, I'm going to write the most Hitchcock movie ever. That's possible. Yeah. And then it almost feels like this is the first version and that, again, not to make anything ever seen inevitable, but it feels like Lubitsch would iterate upon this. And at my favorite period of his career, which is late 30s, early 40s, yeah. he would be working with people who would be influenced by movies like this. Exactly. You know, Felix Broussard builds on what Adolf Monju does here, for sure. 
you know, I didn't connect to those two, but that's a really good connection because yeah. Broussard has that same aloofness. It's just that it's almost like the specific aloofness. I mean, he's a much more, not relatable, but you no, want to give Broussard a hug. Yeah, exactly. He's more of a hound dog, but still embodying that same sort of level of remove. Mm-hmm. It's really particular to him. But like I thought about him a little bit while I was watching this. Mm-hmm. So I was like, this is where he'd plug in if he was here. That's a really good point, because I think Adolf Menchu feels more like an alpha kind of character, like yeah. a type A personality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like an alpha aloof. He's almost showing his dominance. Yes. Being aloof versus Broussard. He just wants to kind of get back at his in-laws. You know, he just wants to avoid all conflict. Right. Why can't we store the jewelry in three or four safes? <laughs> <laughs> I always felt Broussard was this, he was kind of Lubitsch's stand-in in a lot of ways. Yeah. Depending on the film. Anyways, he's my favorite actor in any Lubitsch movie. Oh, for sure. In Shop Around the Corner. Yes. Or even in To Be or Not To Be, right? Yeah. I've related this so many times at this point. You've heard the Dara episode where I mentioned this, where both that character Greenberg and Lubitsch wanted to play. Shylock, yeah. I thought that's so touching. Oh. But yes, thank you so much for like, I'm this random traveling Canadian podcaster who has come in with my tote bag into your city that's an order of magnitude larger than my city and deign to like ask people who I really enjoy the writing of to be on this. So thank you so much for making the time. Oh my it gosh. means so much. Dude, thank you so much for the invitation. I have told you I would talk about Lubish at the drop of a hat. But it's really wonderful. I mean, right back at you, see people whose work I admire and whose thoughtful approach to film form I look to, you know, which is not geolocated in New York City. (laughs) You're saying it's not? Oh, that's what everyone in Vancouver says. You gotta go to New York. You don't Uh, have to be here. And here is nice, but other places are nice too. There's also LA. (laughs) There is also LA. Yeah. Don't go to LA though. (laughs) There are other places, but then. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> but seriously, like, it's so wonderful to see you doing this. And I'm excited to hear all the great people you're going to have on the show. And yeah, thank you so much for having me. Next week, James Panko joins us to discuss three women. Head over to ErnstCast.com for links to the various public domain films we will be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubage Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. Gloria Mercer was our dialogue editor for this episode. Anya Shitak-Scott was our recording engineer. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 